When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. All right, welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. I'm Patrick Beeman, your host here today with Major Britt Geisler, who is a physician recruiting integration officer with the U.S. Army Medical Recruiting Brigade. Um, she joins us because the Army has kindly sponsored Inside the Boards this season. So we're going to get into a little bit about Army medicine, military medicine, and then you can listen for on our Study Smarter main ITV channel and our other podcasts, um, you know, little segments from the Army that we'll be doing uh, throughout the next couple months. So Major Geisler, welcome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I want to get into a little bit about who you are, but first, what we do in all of our shows as we open them is take a USMLE-style practice question. So this comes from Stat Pearls. Um, this one's not quite USMLE-style, uh, but uh, I'll be honest, even though the NBME content outline calls for uh, addressing military medicine-related topics on the exam, it is not easy to find content specifically geared towards military medicine, but uh, this is hopefully going to be interesting. So first up, we got a tactical medic and a special weapons and tactics team who are serving an arrest warrant for a terrorist at his residence. You know, not going to get many vignettes like this on the MBME. Uh, this man is suspected of detonating an improvised explosive device at a crowded football game. Suddenly, shooting starts. Which of the following is defined as cover? All right, so the reason this isn't NBME or USMLE style is because this would be a pseudo case. Which of the following is defined as cover is the question. You don't really need the story or vignette. At any rate, here are the answer choices. Which of the followings defined as cover? Is it A, it hides the tactical team member and makes them non-visible to a threat? B, it affords the tactical team member with some protection against threats? C, cover is a ballistic shield used during a tactical environment? Or D, covers the garment that covers the face of tactical team members? Major Geisler, would you like to take a stab at uh, the correct answer here? Um, Even though I sent this bef uh, to you beforehand and it's, the answer's highlighted. <laughs> um, cover is defined as something that gives you some protection against threats. So it would be the second one. Now, you'd think that's obvious, but um, it is useful to have a framework and, of course, definitions are super important in anything we do. But I pulled this off of Saperos because it's very, very, um, you know, military geared in, in terms of its content here. Um, 
And the teaching points that Stat Pearls gives, I'll, I'll just give them. Normally, we go into a little more depth on these, but... Oh, yeah. This is bringing me back to like ROTC training for the difference... Oh, real? Oh, difference between cover and concealment. It's... Oh, I don't even know yeah, that. Yeah. The first one is concealment, where you become okay. non-visible, but you could, you're still under threat. So like bushes that yes. uh, are in the middle of a, where fire is being exchanged. Yes, that's concealment. Cover is one that actually gives you protection. Cover can give concealment, but concealment can't give cover. All right. So you're uh, between two concrete barriers, prone, and you're in a firefight. But yes, <laughs> okay. When the shooting starts, you got to watch out for for ricochets, and so being actually against a wall is a bad thing. Okay. Cool. Um, well, there you go. Concealment versus cover. You learned something today, um, all you civilians out there. All right. So, you know, that's uh, just a little warm up, a um, little something about military medicine you guys can take away. But now let's get into some more specifics generally about military medicine um, and the Army uniquely for all those civilians out there who, A, might be considering um, a career in the Army um, as physicians, or just uh, civilians who may have colleagues in the military to help them better understand kind of the experience of what it is to be a military doctor and kind of dispel some myths of which I think we're both aware. Uh, to remind the audience, I served on active duty for seven years, four months, and 11 days. I was in the Air Force, um, got out in November of 2017. And as you'll hear from this conversation, I'm sure um, there definitely parts of that that I that I miss so um, Major Geisler let's start with telling us about yourself um, I'm Major Britt Geisler I am an OBGYN by trade just like you are um, I did uh, ROTC for undergrad and then I did uniform services university for medical school that's the the military medical school it's also called America's medical school that's in Bethesda Maryland um, so you're active duty the entire time that you're in medical school you get an active duty second lieutenant pay school paid for and all that jazz um, and then I did my residency down at Brook Army Medical Center um, for the four years of OBGYN. And since then, I've been in mostly small rural hospitals um, to include a deployment to Afghanistan, being kind of a um, rural OBGYN within a small, it's called MEDAC, um, where we... Uh, had very little um, auxiliary, uh, you know, we had little support, you know, um, let's yeah. just say. Yes, I do actually know that. <laughs> Least and then, you know, it, it, it would be, it was interesting to work in a hospital that didn't, that platelets were um, a, a drive away. So the, the blood bank was yeah. very small and it was just a very small hospital. And then uh, I am currently down, I was at Fort Polk, Louisiana for three years, then Fort Wainwright, Alaska for three years. Ooh, cool. And now I'm at uh, Fort Knox, uh, where I am helping recruit physicians into the army um, and kind of trying to, to, um, fill our, our ranks with good people who, who uh, I would be honored to 
stand next to and would be honored to to take care of my, the soldiers in their worst day. Well, for those of you who are listening or just like sign me up already, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna <laughs> throw this out there because I don't want to forget to do it. Um, you should visit goarmy.com/amed. That's Alpha Mike Echo Delta Delta. I, I just really wanted to throw that in there. Um, to return to the regular programming. You say you want to find good people. I would say at least before I signed, before I commissioned in 2006, I had this idea that maybe military medicine, uh, maybe military doctors weren't exactly the best. You know, they're not good people. They're the, they're the ones who, I guess, can't get a, a civilian job. I don't know if that's what I thought, but is there a stigma about the quality of care that a military doctor can provide versus a civilian? Um, I think, yeah, I think with our, with our patients and our, our, the customers, the patients kind of assume that in the hospital we're, we're just like you said, the, the physicians that couldn't get a job anywhere else um, and that in and not only because if you did that, you'd have to go through a kind of approval process to get a job in addition to um, serving in the military. Uh, and also, if you get a job and leave the military and you're on active duty, that is illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, right? So I think so. The, the, so the, there is a stigma that it's always better in the, in the civilian hospitals. And even, even though I feel like... Um, we are able to give evidence-based care. Um, and sometimes the evidence-based care means saying no. And sometimes means that we're doing the right thing for the patient. And sometimes that's not heard, <laughs> not the most popular opinion. And yeah, I guess that that is, that is a, a stigma. So, I mean, that is a question that, that I just want to put on the table because I think because I thought that as a pre-med or had this conception of that, um, perhaps med students also think that. Um, and I want to address it because I think it's patently false. Um, if there is that sort of stigma, it might be because of the fact that, you know, you don't have as much choice in healthcare if you are a service member because you're assigned to a base and your doctor is going to be assigned to a base too. But what a lot of people don't realize as unique to organizations is the military physicians who you train with, who see you as patients, a lot of them have trained, a lot of them have trained in their, especially subspecialties at like world-renowned institutions. You know, like uh, it, it's sometimes so surprising to me um, when I would meet colleagues and it's, you know, a small community. I can't remember how many um, OBGYNs there were um, when I was on active duty within the Air Force, but I want to say it's probably around 100. Um, and so you get to know a lot of people and, you know, the oncologists, they had trained at um, MD Anderson um, and and I think part of that is yes. one of the things the military affords people is for someone like you, you go in, you're serving, you're serving as an OBGYN, um, but maybe you're like five years into it and you're like, you know what, 
I really like the oncology portion of this. I want to go do an oncology fellowship. If you're a civilian, I will tell you that is super hard. I've, I've thought about at times going back and doing psychiatry. I'm like, no way. I, number one, it'd, it'd be financially tough because I'd be taking a, you know, a huge pay hit, 66, 70% pay cut. I'd have to be treated like a resident again, which I don't think psychologically I could handle. Um, but in the military, if you decided to do that and got approved to do something like that, you would continue your current pay essentially. Um, and you'd be able to train anywhere. And when you went to interview at places, you'd be able to say, hey, I come with funding. Is that all kind of true? Yeah. I mean, and it's such a small community. We probably, we already confirmed we know some of the same people. Um, We've probably gone to same meetings and been in the same room. um, And here we are meeting on a podcast. And while you're talking, you know, the podcast can't see me shaking my head north and south and agreeing with you that the, the people who have our training platforms, especially in the army are, are the largest in the DOD and all of them are ACGME uh, accredited. Um, so we have the same standard of training um, as any of the institutions outside of the military. And we have the opportunities to grow um, and follow our passion and not our pocketbook, you know, because it's at true. that time when you're, when you're um, just coming out of residency, you know, a lot of people put their lives on hold and you don't, do you want, you know, or have families um, and want to start their lives um, the, and that the military allows you to kind of continue to grow in that way and not lose um, momentum because yeah. you can go t- to a second residency. I know many people who've done it. Um, you can go to, to fellowships and if the army um, offers it, uh, you have, you have the ability to, to apply. And I don't think they, they quite know that the, you're right. The gynecologist oncologist that trained at MD Anderson is, is the one wearing the uniform um, doing the surgery. Where Dr. Leith do is, um, I think he did UAB. He's at UAB right now. But um, yeah, it's such a s- small community in there, and we're all kind of trained in in our own specialty, and yet have this other military medicine um, part of of our lives that we have to cover too. So I think we become kind of well rounded in in providing care in almost any circumstance. So in one sense, I would say the practice of medicine is, frankly, it's not all that different, uh, military to non-military, when you're stateside or or in a non-combat, non-deployed situation. I I think in general, that's a a fair statement. Um, If you're uh, CONUS, which is we're going to try to use a lot of acronyms here too. CONUS is the Continental United States. Um, it's kind of an acronym. It's not quite an acronym, <laughs> but that's how the that's how the military do. You know, it's all it's all uppercase. Yeah, they find interesting ways to shorten 
things. But, <laughs> but, but at the same time, military physicians have another experience of their daily lives, which is with, you know, having the uniform and the rights and obligations that go along with uh, serving our country and the servicemen and women, um, uh, you know, uh, beside them. So what, what would you say is the biggest difference between military medicine and civilian medicine first, and then army medicine and other branches of service? I think the biggest difference between military and civilian medicine from, I mean, correct me because you've seen both sides is when I'm taking care of my, my, my panel, I don't really have to worry about whether what that patient needs is covered. Because if I need a special medication that's not on a formulary, I fill out a non, a non-formulary request and send it to the phar- pharmacist who I know by first name, who I usually probably have delivered their baby. <laughs> and, or if, I can, if they need care and I need to medevac them somewhere, because I've had to in these small hospitals, I know that, you know, they will um, be able to get housing, get the care they need at the, even at the civilian hospital um, and get transported there without getting a astronomical bill. Um, I have only had to deal with um, a pre-authorization sheet once in my entire um God, I've, <laughs> I've been in uniform for, for a very long time, but even in med school, um, if you include that, the time, my time in uniform for the, you know, 17 years that I've been in the military medicine, I've only de- had to deal with one pre-authorization form. Wow. Well, thank you for your service because that that's a long time. <laughs> but that's a good thing too. It goes by real fast. Man, everything goes by real fast. But <laughs> but uh I mean that speaks to the fact that you, you know, you you're a good representative. You should be the type of person who's trying to get uh people to join up because you have a wide, you know, swath of experiences and you know, you're you're committed, you're you're passionate and I, I think it's it's nice it's nice to have somebody who knows what's up if you're going to pursue an option or explore something like joining uh the army you know uh serving the 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 country and and its uh military members um through your medical training your medical career the you know the uh, of course the stigma is um the the worry is that recruiters are going to promise you all this stuff that isn't going to be true, which I would say that's, mm-hmm. that's not really true either. But your first point of contact recruiter probably doesn't know all that much about the ins and outs of graduate medical education and med school. Um, and, and because of that, you, you know, you should, um, if you want to explore this, you know, get in touch with somebody who um, is a physician who's been through it. And uh, I don't know, can they actually directly contact you or what, what are they supposed to do if they're interested? I mean, that's why I, uh, this position exists, right? Because our recruiters are, are amazing subject matter experts in, in what they do. But there are a lot of nuances yeah. that 
come from the experience of it. I mean, I'm lucky that talking with you, being a former military physician, we can speak the same kind of language and expectations without that sometimes the the recruit recruiters try but it comes with a little bit of more oomph yeah um uh and that's why yeah they usually um you contact the recruiter and if you want to talk to me then the recruiter definitely um share the information with me they have access to me all the time um and they know how to get in contact with me. The uh, Medical Recruiting Brigade has an app that's called um, Army Medicine Careers, and you have a recruiter near you where it actually pops up your your, um, location, and you can call the closest AMED recruiter because it's not not like any strip mall recruiter. It has to be an AMED recruiter because a strip mall recruiter would be like, you want to enlist? <laughs> right. Yeah. And then you, you accidentally sign up for, uh, uh, yeah, you're a, your infant, your infantry, uh, <laughs> uh, specialist and going, wait a minute. <laughs> well, I guess, um, let's, uh, before I have a, a few follow-up questions on that, but, um, army medicine versus air force, Navy space force. No, I don't know if space force has doctors, but. Oh, we are the largest healthcare platform okay. in the DOD. So um, I feel like we have a little bit more of um, career options. Does that make sense? Do you mean like um, specialties? We have a large specialties and we have, we have a larger GME platform. Gotcha. So if you, if you're just going to do raw numbers of, cause most, um, most pre-med and the HPSP applicants are, you know, once they get into medical school, they're worrying about the next step. And so when they say, okay, now I'm in medical school, but what's my likelihood of becoming an OBGYN? So since we have a larger platform, we can give you the raw data, more opportunities, the more opportunities, the higher likelihood for you to get the specialty of your dreams. Perfect. So another thing students worry about, if I join the military, am I not going to be able to, am I going to be forced to do ophthalmology when I want to do pathology? No, I get that question a lot because a lot of people have no idea they have OBGYNs in the, in the army. Yeah. And, and there's new, here's another space where I'm, I'm sure that like you can draw out that there's nuance here. Cause I mean, you can't just do whatever you want. There are more restrictions or you could look at it as structure mm-hmm. within the military. Um, but, uh, walk me through how, you know, specialty selection might be affected. Um, if you're in the military, um, it is, you, you're, you're right. You can't do everything that you want. If you wanted to be a pediatric dermatopathologist, that little niche of medicine might not be, might not be um, perfect for, for, for military service, but I mean, but who knows? There might actually be one. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I know. There might be like one. I know right? a or pediatrician no. who went back to residency to be a dermatologist. So there, there is a pediatric dermatologist in the, in the Army, but he's serving as a dermatologist <laughs> right now. But I mean, the Army 
and all of the entire DOD recognizes that our pipeline, our, our lifeblood is our GME platform, really. Um, so about a third of all military physicians are in the GME programs because they, that is what the world revolves around is our, our is our trainees. So, and, and to support that structure, you need the ones that aren't so military trauma focused, like critical wartime specialties. Yeah. You know, you need the pediatricians because you need the family medicines and you need the OBGYNs and you need the, so for, to have the pediatricians, you need the pediatric subspecialists for the ACGME requirements. So the leadership completely understands that that's our, that's our, our core's lifeblood is, uh, is our training platform. So they put a lot of effort into that. Um, so when you're looking at what you want to do when you grow up, um, I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do when I grow up. But if there is a slot, if there's an opening and you apply, you have a, you know, there's a possibility to, to do it. And everything from yeah. you said ophthalmology, um, dermatology, what else have we talked about? Gyne-oncology, oncology, you know, all kinds of, we have a pediatric surgeon, you know, um, maternal fetal medicine, yeah, MIGS, we have all that kind of stuff that most people don't think about. Um, and I know, I hope a lot of people aren't going to get mad and say, you forgot this and you forgot that. Because I mean, if the, if the training platform needs it, there, there's going to be training for it. So, and in general, um, and, and again, this is, this is just a, a real general discussion between um, a former Air Force physician and the, um, your, uh, I forgot your full title here. You're the physician recruiting integration integration. Okay. Yeah. Real. All right. Got it. Um, so if I am, let's say I'm a second year med student, third year med student, and I'm like, you know what, I'm going to explore this opportunity. Uh, go contact a recruiter. They end up commissioning and they're going to get, um, uh, let's say a, a three year, scholarship for um, paying for their med school, they're going to get a stipend, um, all the sort of benefits that come along with uh, the, uh, the health profession service uh, or scholarship program, which is what I did. That's how I uh, commissioned. When it came time to do the match and select specialty, the way it kind of works is the Department of Defense and uh, generals and colonels and all that um, look at the needs of the specific branch of service, all the bases that there are, the, you know, anything that's going to influence the projected need for this particular specialty at this particular time, three, five, whatever years down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, so they might say, okay, this year we need four people to become OBGYNs. We need six people to do general surgery. Um, correct? That's kind of in general. They do. Yeah. yeah the for, force projection and then the, the... And that can change each year. It, it, it can. Um, it doesn't change too drastically. 
Um, and like this year, they have actually opened a two new uh, GME programs at WOMAC at Fort Bragg. So there is a brand new general surgery program and there's a brand new internal medicine program at Fort Bragg. So what they do is they look out and they say, we need more of this. And like this year it was more general surgeons. So they've been working to either grow ourselves organically as far as um, get more programs, get more spaces, but this is all through ACGME. So there's those rules of getting a new program off the ground or they open up the uh, ability for deferment um, where, where the, someone who has an active duty service obligation from ROTC West Point or HPSP or USIS can actually go enter the civilian match and have an army sponsored slot. Okay. Um, and there's also a few program civilian programs where we have army, army tagged spots within their, their, their program. So you can be like a, if the army says we need 10 of this specialty and you get a slot, it could be to a military training program, a straight up civilian one where you're just like your other colleagues, except in a couple of years, you're going to be, you're going to have a job in the military, or you can have a kind of hybrid where you get kind of like paid by the military, but you're in a civilian program. Is that true? Mm-hmm. Yep. But the, the, the deferment is, that's usually a less than one to 2%. And that's usually on the, ne- the needs of the army so that, you know, you know, so, the, so they can flex out or flex in depending. Um, and every year they have the joint um, board where everyone, all the program directors meet. It's usually the second week of November, but with, you know, the pandemic um it's now in december where everyone gets in a room and talks about uh, and they do the scoring of, of the of the match they do the match yeah people and and figure out who's the best fit for each each place and each slot yep okay so let's say there are 11 people who want to do specialty a and there are only 10 spots if I am really wanting to do, I'll just stick with OBGYN. I really want to do OBGYN. Um, I'm a fourth year. It's uh, I'm doing my military application, about ready to get the match done in, in December, um, which is nice, by the way. Fringe benefit, like you don't have to wait till March. This year is January. Oh, it's January? Okay. Yeah, everything's delayed. But still, you know, <laughs> yes. a little more time. What what happens to me? Like, uh, what what am I going to do? Does that mean I have to go become, I don't know, what the opposite of OBGYN is, a urologist? <laughs> <laughs> well, the the one of the benefits I think of the HPSB, if you do not match in the program of your dreams, um, about eighty five percent do match in the program of their dreams. Um, if you're that fifteen percent that doesn't match in the program of your dreams, you you can. Um, list a um, different internship, whether it's a transitional year or family medicine um, residency or even an internal medicine year, and then reapply. Um, We actually had someone that didn't match my year and became a TY in my uh, hospital. Transitional year for you 
uh, first, second, third years? Yeah, transitional year in my hospital. And she did as many rotations within our department as possible. So instead of having that rotation, uh, that uh, interview rotation in med in the third or fourth year, she had an interview year kind of thing where she did not, uh, she was there all the time. She was able to learn with us, work with us. And because um, I don't know how it is in the civilian world, but the residents get a, get a little bit of a vote too. So yeah. um, she was able to show that she um, fit with our program and she reapplied to, to become an OBGYN. So I guess uh, kind of what I'm drawing out is, is one of the things uh, legally, they they have to provide you um, all all things being equal, uh, yeah, into something. You have to at least get a a year of you will match graduate medical education and get your step yes. three done. Get your license to practice medicine. Yes, um, and after that, you could reapply, and you'd be more competitive, if I recall right. Yes, um, kind of get preferential treatment for that specialty if you have you know a year of. Um, if you're a reapplicant, you um, missed out your first choice, um, or you have kind of a very unique option that you really, honestly, is probably not feasible really at all nowadays, is to take that one year of training and become a general medical officer. Mm-hmm. Um, is that what they call you yep, guys? Yep, AMOs? we do. Okay. Yeah, and flight uh, surgeons. Yeah. Oh. There, you get as a general medical officer, GMO. You have the option to do flight surgery, flight surgeon school, and become a flight surgeon. But you get a utilization tour. So that's again, what I'm saying the one of the bonuses of HPSB is you are guaranteed to be, or as much guaranteed as the world can do, to be a independently practicing physician um, because you will at least match in a in a PGY one where you can get licensed, which from what the research is telling me, there are thousands of medical students that don't match every year. Um, yeah, it's, it's getting pretty, um, pretty competitive. So that's one of the things you can put in. You might not get the, the, you know, the uh, specialty of your dreams, but you will get a step in the direction towards being fully trained. Um, and I've had, and it, you're not precluded from that specialty either. No. That, and that's what I want to emphasize. You might be behind a year or ahead, depending on how you look yeah. at it, the value of an extra year of training broadly. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but you still have that option. The military is not going to force you to go into this or that. No. That's what I want to emphasize because I think people really do think that. That they're just going to be forced to. Yeah, like oh, you, you, you're, oh, you hate kids. Too bad you're a pediatrician. <laughs> yeah. No way, no. I mean, and I know there are some people who um, do their transitional year be a GMO and and pay back their their service obligation and have gone and and entered the civilian match after their after their service and they are a, an experienced physician already that has um, clinical care under their belt. Um, so I think that is, you know, that's all bonuses um, to it. And, you know, I've had a friend that 
was uh, general surgery, didn't get the PGY2 slot, did a utilization GMO tour, and then matched neurosurgery. So, I mean, that it, he was more competitive after, you know, um, after the utilization tour. It's, it's not a bad, it's not a bad thing. Yeah. Definitely not a bad thing. Yeah, I would say that too. Um, I used to think it would have been like, oh, that's going to set me behind or something. But actually, I kind of wonder about the the value of getting to, especially nowadays where um, I, I know outside the military, they, they like don't let med students do anything. Like uh, some you can't even like chart, can't even write a note in the real medical chart. Um, and like literally 99% of our <laughs> A physician's job nowadays is documenting, it seems. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I remember being a third-year medical student learning to sew a second-degree lack. Right. Yeah, exactly. I had a little bit more experience than the med students nowadays. Even, like, the ones I have, I they can't do as much by hospital rules, and it kind of pisses me off. But it's like, okay, eventually it's going to make residencies last longer, um, you know, or it's just going to really suck for people in the programs when they enter, you know, July, and they don't really know how to write a note um, efficiently, and just like tons of practical things. So, so yeah, like a general medical tour, uh, officer kind of tour, couple years doing that or just reapplying after that uh year of resident resident one year of transitional residency or however you look at it um i think that could be val- valuable especially for those who are undecided or those who would be kind of happy with pretty much any specialty in this category like yeah i'd like to do derm but i think i'd be happy as internal medicine um you know i i, I might enjoy uh I don't know, general surgery, but I could also be happy in, you know, urology or I I don't know. Yeah, because a lot of those programs um, like radiology require a TY, not uh, within the military require a TY year. Um, Aerospace medicine um, requires a TY year and then you reapply. So, I mean, um, there's a few more categorical um, residencies, but... I mean, a TY, uh, that's just more time to hone your skills. Yeah. Okay. So most specialties are available to military physicians to some some degree based on the needs of, of the particular service. Uh, so with that being said, a, a lot of people will be like, why would the military need that? And I think OBGYN is a good example because like, what is a combat gynecologist, you know? Um, so what do you, what do you do in the military, OBGYN? Like, um, well, delivering babies on the battlefield? Like, is that a thing? Everyone assumes that. Um, and every time you go to training, there's always a, a pregnant woman when you go to like NTC and JRTC to like throw it in the mix. But which are what? <laughs> oh, uh, the National Training Center and the JRTC, the oh, Joint Readiness uh, something training center. Um, they are uh, the places where we work, where units go and war game. Okay, that sounds fun. Oh, they call it the box. Uh, NTC's at Fort Irwin, where it's in the Mojave Desert, and JRTC's at Fort Polk, where it's in the Louisiana Pine Swamp. So it is where whole units actually go and, and, and um, uh, play war. And so uh, 
um, so for being a combat gynecologist is really um, in the army, we are, should be seen as gynecologic surgeons because we are surgical subspecialty um, where we are pelvic surgeon experts as well as experts of women's health, which apprises 16% of, of the army. So um, six zero. 1616. Oh, 16. Oh, okay. I was like, whoa, that that doesn't even seem possible. <laughs> yeah. I wish it was 60. That'd be amazing. No. Um so But still, that's a good chunk. So we are we're considered to be, you know, a, a surgical specialty where we should be able to take care of um a part of the military population that needs specialized care, as well as uh, massive, massive transfusion protocol experts. That's true. We can surgically stop bleeding real, real fast. Hopefully. We can open up bellies real, real fast. And, you know, and I think that is, um, that is something that most people don't take into consideration. Um, the day before I... You mean like the... Oh, uh, the day before I, I actually got at my FOB... In Afghanistan, um, I just missed out. But what is a FOB? Forward Operating Base. So the, when gotcha. I got to my base in Afghanistan the day before, there was a, um, a trauma case of a, a pregnant woman that was shot in the uterus. Ooh. Yeah. So I don't know how much training that general surgeon got. Did they close the uterus in layers? Uh-oh. <laughs> don't know. But I mean, that, so. that brings a good point. I think like... <laughs> When people are like, oh, I didn't know the military, what what would you even do? Like, you're an OBGYN. I'm like, well, yeah, like the military uh, families have lots of kids, number one, so they need people to deliver the babies. Um, there are lots of um, retired military personnel mm-hmm. who are female um, or dependents of um mm-hmm. of uh, service members, veterans, whatever. So all that kind of makes sense. People, you know, forget that, the, each base is kind of like a little city um, and it has all the, the needs that a municipality would have like uh, fire and, and police and healthcare. So you're, you know, you're pretty much doing the same thing you do uh, routinely on the outside of the military as you do on the inside. But there's a lot of things I learned in residency and everyone in OBGYN residency learns a lot of skills that I just don't apply because you can't in the civilian context. So like you said, uh, massive transfusion, um, thinking of oneself as, um, you know, having some, uh, surgical expertise and skill related to, um, you know, the, the peritoneum, intraperitoneal contents, the, the pelvis. Uh, so what, what does that mean? Like practically, like what'd you do when you deployed? Like, were you just straight up doing pap smears and delivering babies? No, I deployed as a, a general medical officer. So even though I- After I was, training? After training. Oh, wow. After training. Yeah, tell me about that. I was a, I was a squadron surgeon. So it, it's the level of battalion in the cavalry terminology, um, where I was the primary care provider for the entire- um, battalion. So I saw everything from even guys, uh, <laughs> even guys, yeah. even dudes, um, which led for, to a lot of jokes. Yep. Um, but it was um, not that far fetched. Um, a lot of weird things that you thought that it would be 
a stretch for a gynecologist, but um, tinea is tinea. Yeah. Really like, um, and uh, molluscum is not warts. So got to um, make a guy feel uh, good about that. You know, so there are things (laughs) and surgery, surgery, really. um, And what's that look like though? Um, Like if you're a, a gynecologist and you're at a base that sees a lot of say combat injuries or wounds, would you be involved? Like, are you going to have to do brain surgery as a Mm. OBGYN? (laughs) That one's probably Mm. obvious. People know that's not going to happen, but do you, well, do you help like the trauma surgeons? Like I was lucky that, um, that they, I was co-located with a forward surgical team. So a full OR that was um, hooked onto our aid station. That was a separate unit. So they saw me as a, as an, as an asset, as a surgical extender. Um, So I was, I was there because I was able to have surgical hands and be able to retract, stop bleeding, hold pressure, you know, which I mean, that just made another set of hands instead of just two surgeons. There was three. Yeah. And that's, I mean, you cannot underestimate the value of having a trained person, especially another physician on the opposite side of uh, an OR table. Um, uh, you know, regardless of their specialty, it's just, there's, you know, you, we all have skills commonly for those of us who do perform uh, surgery. So. Yeah. And, and trauma surgery, um, I didn't get in any bellies. It was all um, limb stuff and it was all just me kind of retracting, which was, um, I was happy to do, um, but it was it was nice to to help them out and not be in the way, <laughs> yeah, <sure. laughs> not be a liability. Plus, get to do some surgeries you had to, uh, you know, spend a few years training to be involved in. Oh, or only get to do for four weeks as a med student. Yeah, I mean, it got to when being in small hospitals, um, the general surgeons would be like, "Hey, can I scrub into your C-section?" Because I might have to know how to do this one day and you know, be like, no, that's not a gonadal vein. That's the, ovarian <laughs> <vein>. <laughs> but, um, and at having that, um, that working relationship, cause you know, you're, the army's not going to put me in a place where as a gynecologist, I need to be the primary surgeon in a yeah. belly. Um, they keep you within your but, scope of, of practice. Um, but extend it to the full level of your competence, I would say. So like they, they do that for every level to include our medics. Our medics are fantastic. I loved working with medics. And that's just like an EMT. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I thought that, yeah, they're there. I was teaching them how to do digital blocks and moon washouts. And, you know, we, in the army were able to, to use them to the maximum, maximum of their licensure, yeah. pretty much. Everyone is working to the maximum of their, of their training. Yeah, That's awesome. Well, now taking care of guys isn't, isn't as, uh, <laughs> as crazy as stress. Right. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, um, I, I recently, um, took a position as the medical director for a level one um, opioid treatment program. So we're, we're, you know, providing uh, medical uh, assisted treatment for uh, opioid use disorders, so methadone, uh, buprenorphine products. Mm -hmm. And I like hadn't seen a male patient 
uh, except in the military, actually, I had to do a post-op clinic once for the dermatologist um, who was gone, but appropriate selection of cases to make sure wounds were um, healing appropriately. Um, Mm -hmm. But I hadn't seen a male patient for, you know, like seven years or something, but it's not that different if you're dealing with a opioid problem. Um, (laughs) Well, as, as obstetricians, we're the primary care provider of pregnant ladies, right? So being a primary care provider and dealing with musculoskeletal injuries of of pregnant women is very similar to the musculoskeletal injuries of, of soldiers yeah. overuse and chronic pains and, and stuff like that. So it's not much of a, it's not much of a stretch because we do deal with that stuff all the time. Yeah. I, I mean, I, man, this conversation is certainly making me uh, miss portions of uh, what it, <laughs> what it was to be in the military and, and wearing the uniform. Uh, I, I was very, so I would say it was on like my top 10 list of reasons why I wanted to um, join the military and, you know, not just to wear the uniform, but for what it stands for. Um, I think patriotism could use a revival uh, in our uh, culture. And, you know, we should be proud to um, be Americans again and the best of what America has to offer. Um, We should, you know, take hold of that, develop it and, um, you know, take the good, um, leave the the bad parts of our history and and reinvent and uh, reimagine ourselves continuously to hold fast to our ideals and, and, that sense of pride they have at being not just a part of like a, a military organization, but a part of your culture, your country, um, being an American, it's, it's, it's inspiring and, and family, family. I mean, there's the, the values. Yeah. It's, it's, it's awesome. I, I definitely miss parts of it. I, I don't want to take too much time on this because the listeners will have an opportunity to hear more about uh, specific questions regarding Army medicine throughout uh, the next couple of months on our uh, segments in uh, episodes on the, the podcast network. But let me say this because I, I want to emphasize this as one of the things I miss the most. On the outside, Unfortunately, revenue is necessary for clinics, hospitals, um, their staff, the providers themselves, that whole infrastructure to survive. You need to be able to see patients and build their insurance companies and get paid. And like that's just a practicality of life. In the military, you really don't have to think about that. And in a lot of civilian jobs, you don't either. You're employed, you go to work, they give you a paycheck, and you go home. Except also, we are physicians with all these professional obligations and a very long-standing um, tradition of, of um, professional ethics and, and codes that, that we um, uh, uh, subscribe to. But in the military... There isn't this pressure to be like, all right, you got to see more patients. So can we do a routine OB visit in 12 minutes from uh, knock on the door to close the note? And then that way we can see 40 patients in a day. I feel so bad for some of my civilian colleagues who have like the full scope OBGYN practice. The pressure, it's just like a life suck. When I was 
the one of three um, OBGYNs at the base in Scott Air Force Base, uh, my uh, active duty station after I um, got out of residency, I would get to spend a good 10, 15, 20 minutes with a routine OB patient and then 10 minutes to document or so, and then uh, go on to the next patient. You develop relationships. God forbid somebody come in and be like, I'm a little depressed. Oh, oh shit. Uh, you know, in, in the civilian world, it's like, okay, well, uh, here's a referral to, you should see a psychiatrist. Okay. Or make another follow-up appointment. Like you could take the time to address concerns. Uh, first time moms like freaked out about uh, like tons of things. Like shit you see as an OBGYN, like, especially as a guy, like, yeah, I'm so glad I don't have to do that. And that shit is freaky, but you know, if you're, you're good at uh, being able to, you know, ease someone's uh, fears or dispel myths, um, you have the time to do it in the military. And man, that's the thing I miss. I miss having the full freedom to have those relationships um, and take care of patients the way I thought I would be doing all the time when I decided to become a physician. Um, military medicine has its problems. I, uh, you know, I, of course it does. Everything does. Um, I wouldn't be out of the military if it had, if it didn't, um, if my personality fit perfectly, you know, inside the context of military service. Um, but, but seriously, if it is worth considering when those recruiting brochures say things like, don't worry about, you know, just take care of your patient. Um, worry about, let someone else worry about all the other stuff. You won't be limited by pre-auths and all this. That's something you really can't understand, I think, as a medical student and maybe not even fully as a resident. But like once you're in practice, the pressure of like some organ, you know, your, your employer to be like, the churn like just get them through you know um you know schedule five surgeries to, you know to document later you know see 40 patients and then do all your notes at once the, i mean stuff like that is ridiculous and it's not how medicine was meant to be we need to fix it but some of the best things about being a doctor are supported within military medicine and that's one of the things i would say i miss the most so yeah, I was, I've been involved in kind of practice management when I was up in Alaska. So we get some of that, the monetary turn of like the ins and outs, how can we maximize, but it really was never like we need a double book. We need to shorten appointments. It was like, right. okay, what's the risk and the benefits? Yep. So we're, are we losing money? Because it, it does come from somewhere. It comes from the, the budgets, but um, are, are we losing money? Okay, yes, then why? Because we have 24-7 physician coverage on labor and delivery. Okay, um, so we're having a physician that's up, upstairs at night that's not seeing patients continuously, that's not producing our views. And so it was that risk and benefit. We'll take that risk of not meeting our MGMA and our, our practice goals to, for the benefit of having, have, doing what's, what's right. Yeah. So, and ha and having the hospital commander be, okay, let's do what's right. Yeah. Uh, and I'll take that. And I'll take that risk. Yep. That, and I would say that that overall is for all the faults that um, get introduced into uh, organizations because of human frailty, at least 
I would say for the most part, on the whole, the vast majority in the military, it's about doing what's right. And that is a value that's held up, honored. Um, it's not weird to talk about, like doing the right thing in a military context. Sometimes it seems like an uh, afterthought or kind of strained to talk about the ethics, um, the morality uh, that, that our uh, state in life, our relationship with patients, whatever it is, imposes upon us. But in the military, doing what's right is, I think, up and down the chain. That's uh, what's encouraged. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for this. I, I'm sure we could actually go on for a lot longer. Um, <laughs> and maybe we'll have you back. Uh, and yeah, I mean, with the, this virtual world, I mean, you got, you can so easy access and reach everyone. We, we totally. probably know the same people. Yeah. I have a big, uh, big uh, Zoom reunion of all, <laughs> all uh, uh, former and current uh, military uh, OBGYNs across all branches of service. That would well, Air Force puts on the critical care, um, the critical care OB conference right. every year. That just happened. Yeah, Bart Stat, uh, Colonel Stat, does that. Yep. So he's you can always jump in, jump in on it. Yeah, maybe we'll just turn this into like a. a, a communications arm for the military <laughs> no we can't do that i don't know there probably someone will have to listen to this and approve it before we yeah uh, release it but, yeah. Um, yeah that's the military and but it keeps things consistent and the people who serve are keeping us safe and the people who keep us safe healthy yeah uh, so thank you for your service and thank you for your time thanks for yours too oh. it's so nice to be able to talk to to someone uh, I'm I'm proud. I'm definitely like more proud uh, just having this conversation, being reminded of everything. So thank you. It's cool. It is. It, and not, not everyone can. Not everyone can do it. Gets the opportunity. Can, it, yeah. it can do it. So yeah. now here's the plug to see how different your medical career could be on the forefront of medicine. Visit goarmy.com slash AMED. That's A-M-E-D-D. Or in military lingo, Alpha Mike Echo Delta Delta. 